welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Thanks so much. Couldn't do any of this without you. Hey, have you found Counterpunch Plus yet? If you haven't, that is our brand new subscriber section over there on the website. The print magazine is no more. It has been sent to a much nicer place where it has been retired with all the other print periodicals to live out their days. But now we have CP Plus available on the website right now. It is available to everybody, but uh, in the not-too-distant future, that will require your subscription. A small amount is going to give you access to all of the Counterpunch Plus content, which includes all of the great columns from the print magazine, plus 25-plus years of archives. You can go back and read all of Alex Coburn's old columns, Jeff Sinclair's old stuff, all of the things that have run in Counterpunch over the years. That will be available. A really cool feature that you're not going to find in, I don't think, any other uh, outlet on the left in the alternative media. So Counterpunch, go to the website, make a donation, get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus, do what you got to do, help keep the lights on. You can also go to my Patreon, support my work there, patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates, a lot of political analysis, international affairs, uh, essays, other stuff there. So uh, if you like what I got, I got a lot more for you. Thank you. So Callie Kuno is back with me. Callie is a friend of the show. Callie is one of the most brilliant political minds that I know. And he is somebody that I always want to talk to when I want to get a sense of the history that we're living through. And so obviously, Callie's been somebody that I've been tapping here recently in recent months. Callie, in case you don't know him and his work, he is the co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson. You can find them on Twitter at Cooperation JXN, one of the most important projects anywhere in the United States uh, cur- currently going on now. Callie Kuno, welcome back to Counterpunch. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for giving me some time today for talking to me about what it is that we're living through. Help us to understand. I want to begin right there with, well, I guess the most general question I could ask. How would you describe this period that we're living through? It's something of an interregnum, something between one thing and leading into another thing. But what is that thing and what are we living through? Yeah, good question. Um, Let me start off by, by saying that I think and anybody who's listened to me before, I think we just witnessed the closing, um, if you would, of the second reconstruction. I think that is fundamentally what we have lived through uh, and what we are experiencing now. And I think that we just uh, kind of witnessed and are going through a process wherein kind of the haze tilden compromise of 1877 uh, 2.0 is being played out right before our eyes. Uh, now, to bring folks who aren't familiar with some of that uh, history and some of this framework, uh, you know, kind of to a close, um, you know, 1877 marked the end of the, the period known as Reconstruction, wherein uh, the states uh, of the, the, uh, the Confederacy that succeeded from the union uh, had to apply under certain conditions to be readmitted into the union. Uh, And initially it was the, the initial process was under some very clear, strict and stern terms uh, about making sure that slavery was abolished, uh, that wage labor was in place, that there were some fundamental laws uh, that allow uh, the formerly enslaved uh, persons, my ancestors, to be able to uh, travel freely. Uh, but by the close of that period, um, basically the, the Jim Crow world um, that folks came to know that has structured this society basically ever since really kind of came into being, you know, um, as the, the compromise, you know, really just set it up in such a way that you know, the, the Republicans could retain the presidency, but they had to give up the Reconstruction Project. That means disarming the Union soldiers, a good portion of them, whom were Black, so they disarmed the Black community and left the Southern planter class, the Southern ruling class, uh, right back in charge, but just under some new terms of, of doing their business under the terms, under some new terms, slightly new terms within the Union. 
Now, I'm focusing on that. There's a lot of things within that period that you can focus on, but I'm focusing on that uh, for two reasons. A, I do believe that we are witnessing, as of during that period, we're witnessing kind of a transition within capitalism itself. And there's a contest that's the, a deeper piece of what's happening um, that is kind of uh, the base of all this kind of turmoil and conflict and uncertainty that we're all experiencing uh, that is at play. And which set of forces, uh, which set of interests, uh, which production relationships and production dynamics are going uh, to kind of rule the day and reorder and restructure society. That is a critical piece that's at play that is guiding all of the crazy kind of politics that we've been witnessing uh, for much of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and I I'm, I'm want everybody to focus in on that because there's just been too much, in my view, there's just been too much of a focus on Trump being an aberration as opposed to being, in, in part, uh, kind of an inevitable outcome of uh, the logic of capitalism and the logic of how the politics, both of white resentment, white reaction, um, but also a certain type of economic nationalism uh, reasserting itself uh, and trying to gain ground and gain footing. Like that is really what he represented. And I think he, what he represented quite well, actually. And I think the record has to bear that out. Otherwise, 70 million people uh, would not have voted for this person, right? Um, and they aren't going anywhere. You know, uh, those 70 million folks who voted for Trump, they're not going anywhere. And we got to recognize for folks who, you know, say, well, yeah, he, he got 70 million and he lost. 70 million uh, uh, votes are more votes than Obama got in 2008. Right. And that was noted to be a primarily historic uh, turnout. So it's not insignificant. Uh, and there's a solid base uh, for the reactionary politics that he was espousing. Now, you know, this this um, drama, if you would, about um, not conceding defeat. Um, many people just think, OK, this is this is good for his brand or. He's just being stubborn or he's a sore loser and putting it, putting it primarily again in kind of a psychoanalysis, which I think really avoids a deeper material analysis and political analysis. Um, you know, not to say that he isn't a sore loser, I'm not denying that, uh, but I think it's inconsequential to what's really kind of at play. And what's really at play is what are going to be the terms that the new administration and the new forces are going to have to come into. And what is he setting himself up in those aligned with his interests up to do in the next four years to be able to regain power? And if you look at it from that uh, vantage point, he's actually being quite successful uh, because, you know, by all indications, again, 70% of the 70 million people by many, you know, uh, uh, studies and, and uh, polls that have been taken, 70% of the people who voted for him uh, do not believe that these elections were legitimate, uh, that they represent uh, a democratic expression of the quote unquote will of the people, uh, which means they are going to uh, fight back uh, and continue to kind of delegitimize the Biden administration and resist each and every one of his moves going forward. So that's baked in and built in. And he is setting himself up to be a major player, but also I think to give himself and his family some political cover uh, in the next four years. Um, and what's, what's really at stake is not just a game that Trump is playing. There's some major forces, and I don't think they're all completely consolidated, don't get me wrong. But the level at which, you know, he's got a significant portion of the Republican Party kind of traditional leadership to this point, towing most of his line, most of the things that's going out of saying we got to let this, you know, I'm going to use Mitch McConnell, who I think is right now the most powerful uh, uh, politician in the United States, bar none. We, we could probably get to that a little bit later. 
But uh, you know, Mitch is using this as a bargaining chip. And should things go the Republicans' way in Georgia, which I suspect they will, uh, you know, he's going to be right back in a in a super commanding position of of being in place to determine what the actual agenda of the Biden administration is going to be, or to set up uh, a, an even more elevated contest for power down the road uh, with the same elements of his playbook that he used against uh, Obama. And and one of the main thing is okay, if you try to go around me and use your executive powers, uh, we'll just brand you tyrant the same way that we branded uh, Obama for using his executive powers to go beyond uh, uh, the limitations and the blockages of the Senate. So Biden is set up uh, either way it goes at this point to have to cater to uh, Mitch McConnell and to the, to the Republicans on his entire agenda. And it, all those folks who were hoping to somehow move him to the left in some way or some fashion uh, better come to grips with that in terms of the real politics of this of this empire. But it's understanding like like what is going on now behind the scenes and even you know somewhat in the foreground. Uh, there is uh, uh, they are defining the terms of what the next four years are going to look like. What is the austerity program going to look like? That's really what's at play. And everybody needs to be crystal clear uh, on that and understand that that is the that is what's what's uh, shaping the, the actual ground. Uh, uh, this kind of Hayes Tilden Compromise 2.0. That's what's shaping the ground leading up to January 20th. Come January 20th, uh, there's going to be some fanfare. There's going to be some issues, but you know, best believe at this point in time, um, there'll be a handover. Uh, because they will, I think by that point in time, have successfully negotiated to come to terms with what social programs are going to be on the chopping block. You know, to what degree is Medicaid going to be on the chopping block? To what degree is Social Security going to be on the chopping block? You know, to what degree will there be any semblance of uh, uh, any kind of medical insurance? All these different things are on the chopping block. And Biden has already said so for anybody who's really paying keen attention. Um, so we are being we're being set up for a major austerity uh, uh, program, uh, and I think you know a deepening of the right. I don't think there's any other way uh, to look at this, quite frankly. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and in fact, I think the austerity is almost a foregone conclusion at this point. In fact, Biden has almost staked his entire career on that, on precisely that kind of policy thinking. But I want to return to the uh, analogy that you drew with 1876 there in the beginning, because I was not, um, I was not expecting to discuss it. But since you brought it up, it, it is a very striking. Uh, parallel, partially because of the reconstruction aspect that you mentioned, but the other uh, the other element of this that I think is um, you know really worth noting is the fact that there was a very real and very significant underlying material and economic basis of conflict at the time uh, leading up to 1876. And I'm, of course, speaking of the uh, the, the wars over the currency. Uh, originally, of course, the, uh, the, the those fighting for the greenbacks and for the expansion of the money supply versus the financiers on the East Coast in Wall Street and in Boston and elsewhere who wanted the gold standard and so forth, which then carries forward from there into the battle over silver versus gold and all of the rest of that, which was ultimately a class conflict. It was a class conflict. It's what led to the so-called populist movement of the 1890s and all of the history that emerges out of that. And so um, in thinking about the period we're living through now as something of a second, uh, you know, great, great compromise here, is there also that material economic conflict underpinning all of this? Do you see something like that? I do. Um, and I'm glad you went there because that was some of the way the, the places I want to go. You know, I think this is the area that we, we, we meaning the left. Um, and by that, I mean very specifically socialists, communists, anarchists, uh, and revolutionary nationalists, to be clear, uh, 
I think we are in a period where we really have to sharpen up uh, our analysis of the actual kind of fractions and factions of the bourgeoisie, if you would, uh, to get a clear read because it's 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 clear, for instance, uh, on on many respects, you know, looking at historical alignment, uh, say of Trump in particular, um, you know, where a, a very close proximity, of course, to real estate, but a deeper proximity also with with the petrochemical industry and the conflicts in particular uh, that you see playing out amongst key sectors of the Republican Party and where their vested interest uh, has, has, has laid by their, their kind of political expression uh, is their, their big conflict with big data and big tech. Uh, and I think this is one of these areas where we are seeing some, some of this, what I was alluding to earlier, right? Like the, 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 who's going to guide the social relations of the future. Um, and if, if anything, you know, uh, COVID uh, and what has transpired, you know, just this past, what, nine months now, or 10 months, uh, has given a big leg up, I, I think, in this game, right, uh, of, of who's going to actually rule the world and control the means of production and the resources. It's given a big leg up to big tech uh, because, you know, we have to look at what's transpired this last 10 months uh, as a living experiment. If capital has been able uh, to just run a massive experiment uh, in how to extract more labor from us without having to you know do all the overhead expenses uh, in the form of, of, uh, all this virtual work and virtual meet they've, they've learned so many new things over the course of this last 10 months that best believe is going to lead to a major reorganization of work in this society and around the globe. Uh, and it's going to, to push uh, uh, kind of more into this private contractor realm um, uh, and the, the the more invasive use of technology to monitor people's time on their computers and, you know, whether they're engaged and whether they're actually doing uh, uh, work. Uh, and there's been many studies that have, have pointed to that uh, in the time that, that um, you know, we've all been under various types of quarantine, that we are actually, those of, those of us, and I'm, I'm uh, fortunate enough in this time period to kind of be one of those people, not by... Uh, design, but kind of uh, uh, not by choice, rather, but, you know, just just because of the circumstances. Uh, But I can see in all the different ways that this is reorganizing society. And you can see in the the different ways in which, you know, the Republicans were targeting Facebook, they were targeting Twitter, uh, saying that they were manipulating the outcomes, that that, uh, they're hostile to right-wing views, which is all BS, you know, in all practicality. Uh, but, you know, they definitely went after them and continue to go after them uh, long before the elections and all the way through, including now, uh, as, a, as a major point of conflict of, of kind of ruling class interests. And I think we need to follow this. And I'm saying follow because I'm not saying and I'm not convinced myself yet that, that uh, there are clear kind of factional lines yet. But there are clearly some tendencies and there are some things that are lining up, you know, wherein like, like the big tech pharmaceuticals are much more for those two in particular, kind of much more in line with the, the, the orientation of the neoliberal policies coming from the Biden camp, for instance, or coming from uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, and at least a, the fraction uh, that Trump represents within the Republican Party, uh, which I do think you know, like even what happened today uh, with Barr coming out and saying, I didn't, you know, he didn't see or the FBI or the Justice Department didn't see any major fraud or enough, you know, to overturn the election. You know, that represents some splits within their own both apparatus thinking and strategy. But but on this question, you, you clearly see that there are some differences there. Uh, and then how things played out in the, in the stock market and continue to kind of play out in the stock market even with capital always hedging its bets, um, you know, but 
um, this kind of disconnect between the real economy and the stock market, we saw it even bubble more last week when uh, um, what was it? the Dow jumped over 30,000, you know, on news about uh, the transition, you know, uh, Biden being able to get his transition team in place and there being some concession, you know, and that is one of the ones that's just deeply invested in uh, tech. Um, so th- this is something we need to pay attention to uh, and, and how things are going to roll out in the future. And the last thing, um, like why this is complicated in so many ways and why I'm saying we have to do a deeper dive. So California overwhelmingly and resoundingly uh, went to Biden as most of us suspected that it would. But on that same ballot, there was a measure, uh, you know, uh, that basically allowed Uber and Lyft uh, to continue to exist and call their their uh, workers, people who are, are working for this algorithm, in effect, uh, independent contractors. And it passed in California, not narrowly passed, but it passed. Uh, and this speaks to some major fragments, um, I think, that, that you see emerging within the Democratic Party and the liberal kind of uh, coalition, where they didn't come out, you know, the Democrats didn't come out and try to pr- pr- preserve or extend what would used to be considered the kind of their union base, you know, uh, the a base that they, they, at one point in time, like in the 70s and 80s, they wouldn't have dared thought of portraying or, or going in a different direction. But they were largely silent on this one, you know, from all, everything that I've studied and everything I've seen. Uh, and basically just surrendered that entire section of, of the Democratic Party base uh, to please Big Trump and its direction and domination of uh, a growing domination of, of California's overall economy. So we got to look at this because this this is clearly a set of forces we have not figured out uh, how to fight back against yet, not effectively. Um, and it's, it's going to be a major player in driving Biden's agenda and, and everything going forward. Absolutely. Just a couple of minutes before we head to break, I just wanted to note as well that I, I think one of those great divides uh, that, that we're talking about here in terms of the economics has to do with uh, those sectors of capital that are dependent upon global supply chains and global value chains and those that are less dependent on it. As you noted, uh, big tech, for example, or even finance, international finance capital versus something like the petrochemical industry and others uh, that are more national oriented real estate construction uh, these type of these type of industries that divide is obviously reflected in the politics right sort of neoliberal quote-unquote globalist politics versus a sort of nationalist quasi-fascist kind of politics so uh, the question is not only about ideology it is a question of economics of mm-hmm. value and of surplus value and profit that's right that's right. And we cannot forget that. That's why I'm trying to draw this back home. Not saying that there's concrete conclusions, because I think that that there's a lot of things that we collectively need to study, a lot of homework we need to do. But I'm warning everybody that this is this represents not just a political shift, but an economic shift. And you can see that, you know, if you're doubting me, you can see that in both how both sides are gearing themselves up uh, to be in competition with China. A lot more to say about that. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue with Kali Akuno. Go to uh, the Twitter at CooperationJXN to follow Cooperation Jackson. Come back on the other side of the break. We'll keep it going.
Here on Counterpunch Radio, chatting with Callie Akuno. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the material basis for some of the conflicts that we've seen uh, that have emerged in the Trump era and potentially what we might see moving forward. And I guess I just want to kind of pick up right there and talk a little bit about the Biden administration and what a Biden administration represents. I mean, obviously, I think it goes without saying that we're, we're seeing something of a return to normal, a return to the status quo, some kind of a, you know, neoliberal imperialist equilibrium or something like this. Um, but I think there's something deeper happening here. And I want to get your take on this. The, the incoming administration does it represent just a return to normal, or is there something more? I think there's something more, honestly. I think there's something more. Now, there's a deep yearning uh, amongst the liberals and amongst certain sectors of the ruling class for normalcy. There's no question about that. I mean, they've stated that uh, openly. They've got broad social appeal to that openly. Uh, but they are, are very well aware uh, that you know, for lack of a better term, and I think we do need a better term, but for lack of a better term, uh, there is a neo-fascist movement on a global scale that they cannot ignore. Um, so that's one on the political side. And on the other side, they are very well aware uh, of the, the, the growing limitations of capital and the growing limitations around uh, the carrying capacity of the earth. The, you know, they are, they are more aware of that than folks, I think, realize or, or want to tend to. Um, now, how they envision resolving the issue is profoundly different than how me or you would understand and see the necessity of resolving the issue. Um, but they, they see some, uh, uh, they see the, the cliff, I would argue with everybody. Uh, but, you know, their their profound belief uh, is that they are going to come up with the appropriate techno fixes to get us out of the crisis in the bunch that we are in. Uh, and you can see that in part how, again, I'm going to come back to what we've all lived through and how I see this being a major shift, COVID being a major shift um, uh, that that uh, into overall relations on a global scale. Uh, that I don't think we all come into grips with yet. And we can't, you know, because we're kind of living in the middle of it. We don't have the perspective of hindsight. We're still missing a lot of the global kind of picture and dynamic. A lot of things that we can see are, are somewhat piecemeal. How it all connects is not fully clear yet. But I would argue that just looking at the pieces, there's some major changes afloat. Going back to this piece of one of the things that uh, of why I'm kind of arguing in part, for the techno fixes and why one side is really aiming for that. You know, uh, look at how Amazon, uh, uh, Tesla, and those forces 
have just skyrocketed, not only on paper, not only in the stock market, but in their actual position within the global market, particularly Amazon. Um, it is, you know, without question dominating uh, uh, the U.S. economy now as a result of COVID-19 and its, its positioning within the overall framework uh, of both distribution, but also articulation of production. Um, you know, and, and everybody's kind of having to orbit around it. So much so that I think what they're hiring something like 2,000 people a week now. Um, you know, one of the, you know, it's just, it's ridiculously, you know, what they're doing, um, you know, in, in that regard. But, you know, the, the main piece that I want to bring us to is a look at this shift is about the techno fixes again. Look at how capital in particular and the ruling forces in both parties, how they responded to COVID-19. Now, on the one hand, at least the argument has been, you know, from Biden's camp somewhat implicitly that uh, they would have uh, governed through science and applied more science uh, uh, in their actual administration uh, of, of management of the crisis. But they stopped short at every point in saying that if they were in charge, um, you know, during this period, they would have done a, a national shutdown uh, and, and would have followed through on providing the extensive relief, including what basically would have amounted to, at least in temporary, if they were serious, uh, a temporary universal basic income program. They shut that down immediately. And they all they pivoted to, we need to put more money into pharmaceutical re research and the pharmaceutical development in that science league. That was their fundamental answer if you go back and you look at it. And so this whole piece around, uh, we're going to resolve this now through a more... Uh, egalitarian and equitable distribution uh, of the, the the vaccines. You know, you, you saw, uh, everybody saw and witnessed, you know, Cuomo's grandstanding about uh, how he was going to make sure the Black and Latino communities in New York, and particularly in New York City and some of the er other areas were going to be the first to get the vaccine. They weren't going to be left out again, you know, uh, as if it was primarily up to him and not up to market-driven forces as to how that's going to be rolled out. Uh, but that was their response. And we need to understand that's a techno response. It's a market-driven techno response. And we need to be, be clear uh, about uh, this because it puts us in binds wherein the logic of capital accumulation winds up being the dominant logic that we all fall prey to as opposed to seeing it right before us, the most effective treatments throughout the globe have come from clear, social, organized, political responses. Vietnam, Cuba, uh, you can count New Zealand and some of those. Social organization with clear political leadership was the key answer in getting people to understand what they had to do in terms of you know, taking adequate uh, health protocols and processes doing the proper, you know, uh, 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 social distancing, doing the proper contract tracing, providing all the different medical uh, supports, providing all of the material supports that people needed, created vastly different outcomes than trying to rely solely uh, in part on science, but a limited type of science. You know, we can maybe speak to that, if not today at another point, uh, but a limited amount of science uh, let me just say this, because what I mean by limited, uh, I'm not one of these anti-vaxxer people, so don't even get it confused or anything like that. I wouldn't be here without, wouldn't be alive without the benefit of modern, you know, scientific knowledge and discovery, all the different ailments I've had and struggles I've had over the years. But um, it's been remarkable what they've been able to do under a short period of time. Uh, it shows how far our knowledge has, has grown but it also how they did the, the trial runs, uh, we have to really question that and question the urge. Uh, because you know, it normally takes with something like three to seven years for 
a medicine to get uh, approved because it's going through so many trials and so many different things. But this one got fast-tracked for understandable reasons. But there is no long-term study. There is no long-term knowledge of how this thing is going to work. Uh, and they already noticed, if you hear them, they're like, we're concerned that there's core communities which would not accept the vaccine. Part of that is because people are having to acknowledge the extent uh, of the anti-vax uh, 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 movement, which I see as a clear right-wing movement, uh, uh, the dominant elements of it, uh, it's growing kind of popularity and, and uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the real base it has, but also just the historic suspicion of Black and other communities uh, uh, that comes from, you know, Tuskegee and many type of experiments, which has happened to us in the past. But this this major techno fix um is a challenge, you know. Uh, uh, let me bring it home. Um, today, uh, I received notice from uh, the Jackson Public School System uh, that uh, this was the last. I have until today to determine uh, what type of schooling my kids are going to have, you know, in, uh, after the the holiday break. Uh, whether they're going to do continue to do digital learning, which they've been doing all, uh, you know, this year so far, um, or whether they will go back into class. And the things that they cited, they wanted all the parents. They sent us this like this little package information package, and the thing that they cited, you know, one of the number one things that they cited, I think it was number two on the list, was that you know, there's a vaccine now. Which, which means that instruction, in-person uh, uh, in instruction uh, will be safe. And I responded, you know, back to one of the teachers I, I know who has some, some poor influence, just by text message earlier, you do know that there won't be a mass distribution to folks like me or you until probably April, May, you know, by the, by the earliest of suggestions. So not only is this false advertisement, it's just straight up dangerous, but it just relies that the, the pressure that even the district is around making sure that they, they are, uh, are, are getting the ADA and getting the money, um, that they're forcing and rushing back to school and putting that over the continued health benefit of the community. Um, but this is the capitalist's response, not only to COVID-19, this is their response and it's going to be their response to the climate crisis, right? Um, and it's not going to work. All of that to say, it's not going to work. Um, the system has to change, and they are very much uh, aware of that, but it's not in their interest to change it. So they're going to pursue this basically until the wheels fall off. And what that means, which I think they're very well aware of and what we need to be, be mindful of, it just leaves so much more room for the growth of the of the right. Well, that's exactly what I was about to get at, because um, everything that we're talking about here really, I think, points to a kind of myopic, uh, narrow-minded tunnel vision that we've come to expect from Democrats, uh, you know, over the over the decades, and. This is only going to deepen all of the problems that already exist, right? That that the probably Obama's greatest crime among his many crimes was his re steadfast refusal to push for any kind of progressive uh, legislation that would address some of the fundamental and underlying uh, conflicts and deficiencies coming out of the 2008-2009 uh, economic crisis. And because of that, and because of that deep pain that he never addressed, you it led to many of the conditions that gave rise to Trump, not a direct line. But one of the primary contributors to that. So now it seems everything is intensifying an even more extreme version of Obama style austerity will be imposed with Biden an ever more extreme response to that austerity right. coming right. from the right. So, Callie, what does that look like? I mean, you had liberals for the last four years walking around shell-shocked, dumbfounded, and horrified every day by the depths of depravity. So now help us to envision how deep is the depravity going to go? <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet is what I would argue, folks. Um Number one, I don't think Trump is going much of anywhere. 
And even if he does, uh, again, Mitch McConnell is waiting in the rings, you know, uh, in the wings. And he actually knows how to play this game. He actually knows how to govern. Folks should go back and recall how he was able to successfully block uh, Obama on many strategic, you know, uh, uh, interests and aims that the liberals wanted to pursue. And because they're, they're primarily interested in preserving the empire above all else, people need to understand that about the Democrats. That is their main thing. Uh, the, the Republicans, on the other hand, led by Mitch McConnell, are doing everything that they can and everything within their power to, on the one hand, restructure American society to make sure it's as completely compliant with the demands of capital in the 21st century as possible. And then on the other hand, they have to appease their religious right constituency. So they're, they're aiming and moving towards, you know, I don't, the, the, the you know, not only just a heron vote uh, uh, democracy, uh, but a, you know, basically a, a kind of a mini theology, if you would. I mean, that is literally where they're moving. Kelly, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm going to, I'm going to pose a, something of a counterpoint here. I would, mm-hmm. I would say that while those are uh, probably two of the primary functions, I think we saw even, especially in 2020, we saw that maybe one of, if not the primary function of the Democratic Party is to, is to smash, strangle, and otherwise prevent the left from ever emerging. Oh, look, we, we're, we're 100%. That's what I mean by preserving the empire, to make it clear. So I'm glad you brought that out. Uh, because, I mean, you know what I've said before, and I'll say it again here. I thought the primary objective of the Democratic Party was accomplished in March of 2020. Straight up. And that was blocking the left, you know, in the form of, of Bernie Sanders and the movement and the forces and the coalition that he was bringing to the table. Uh, and that continues now. I mean, you look the night that the 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 of the the presidential elections. Think the elections wasn't even done yet, and the returns were coming in, and they started attacking the progressives in their own base for losing for them being the reasons why they were losing seats in the house, and they then they went on the attack later. You know, the next couple of days when it was clear that particularly there was going to be a runoff in Georgia of saying that it's all those who are advocating for socialism and defunding the police, which made this a runoff. In Georgia, are you serious? You're going to blame that for a runoff in Georgia when instead, if you didn't look at the, 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 the left forces and the progressive forces who had hit the streets with their own agenda was what you know created this kind of new uh, uh, dynamic, at least around the presidential election. It's not clear if that's going to hold uh, uh, you know, for these actual Senate races, the coalition that they built, time will tell. But they immediately went on the attack. And you've, you've seen uh, both of those candidates there have to step back from positions around uh, uh, criticizing Israel, step back from uh, commitments towards universal health care, step back from uh, commitments towards, you know, being uh, uh, in any form aligned with, with the quote-unquote the squad. So the full-on attack against the left is primarily their concern because you you turn around and you look at uh, uh, within a couple of, I mean he said it before but within a couple of days once it became clear that Biden and his team were going to win he just made it plain I'm going to put some Republicans in office in my cabinet and I'm going to form a coalition with them and 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 this is how I'm going to govern and going to rule I'm going to build a, a coalition that they can find, uh, uh, you know, that they can digest and that, that we can govern from, which means that, you know, the progressive uh, sectors of the party be damned. Um, so that is what I mean by preserving the empire, because the preservation means conceding to the right. I want to make that clear what I was saying, Eric. That's what it means, right? Like, if, if as long as you guys kind of stay within the overall fold, we'll continue to bend in your direction. We have lived through this basically since the days of Nixon, but that's clearly accelerated since the days of Reagan. 
And now, Kelly, Kelly, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but just in the few, few minutes we have remaining here, I want to push a little further on the point that you're making here, because I agree with you, and it is about preserving the empire, and part of the way that they do that is smash the left and any mm-hmm. chance of a progressive upsurge, but to be even more literal about it, the Democrats are absolutely steadfastly committed to preserving and in fact expanding the empire that is to say u.s military engagement in places where the trump administration kind of i don't want to say disengaged because that would imply that they formally did that but sort of didn't really do uh let's let's say didn't really do the homework that imperialists are supposed to do right right? so you see in places like the horn of africa right now where ethiopia has a crisis emerging in central africa the central african republic is potentially on the verge of civil war, Congo on the potentially on the verge of civil war. You have uh, uh, Libya potentially coming out of civil war and the U.S. has played almost no role in the uh, in the dialogue process. No, that, like that, that. That's so, far from over, Eric. Trust me. Yeah. Oh, I know. Over. I know. But my point here is what we've seen under these last few years that is going to be reversed in the sense that we're going to see a return to the kind of democratic form of imperialism that we saw under Obama, who expanded AFRICOM, who expanded U.S. military engagement. So where Trump's viciousness and killing ratcheted up from Obama, the actual engagement around the world somewhat came down. And so I want to get your comment mm -hmm. on the way in which Democrats are going to expand the empire in the form of engagement around the world. No, yeah. Uh, look, we, we're going to have to come back to this because we were just kind of warming up. I know time is coming out, but I'd love to do a part two with you if you're willing to do it, you know, because I think this is a critical piece that we're going to have to really draw home. That's going to be a clear dividing line. It has to be a clear dividing line uh, uh, amongst the left. And I mean that sincerely because uh, we got to get clear on anti-imperialist politics. So let's be let's be clear. The normal part that they're trying to return to, this being the Democrats, uh, is getting back to putting the United States and its NATO allies back in command of the military apparatus, which has dictated policy around the world, dictated terms around the world since the end of World War II. And they see that slipping. And and they they not only want to return back to this pivot towards Asia, which Obama did, uh, uh, you know, in all of their military affairs, they not only want to return back to that, but they're stepping up, as you noted, their presence in AFRICOM as part of the new great game, the new great scramble uh, uh, for for resources. Uh, And he's made it abundantly clear he's going to step up all efforts there to block China. We mentioned that briefly, but to block China and to do a greater level of penetration through AFRICOM uh, and in the Pacific region of stepping up not only U.S. military presence, but building their own kind of counter and contra forces in all of these areas to battle uh, the new enemies, which are who, right? Like, who and what is that? Um, you know, what new fictitious in- entities are they uh, uh, creating to set up like dominoes to, to kind of put down, uh, to preserve their role, to justify their existence? Like this is a major piece that, that's coming home, uh, is coming in, into play. And the, the thing that we need to, I'm arguing for, we really have to come to grips internally because we know that there are too many progressive and liberal forces that allegedly the left has to be allied with in this country who are more than willing to turn a blind eye to what the United States does on international soil just so long as there's so-called breathing space and, and some level of, of a, a, a triage politics that's, that's uh, available within the domestic empire itself. And that is going to lead to fascism quick, fast, and in a hurry. I think it's important to note when we talk about this this issue, it's been brought up many times before I've engaged in this debate 
Boy, I couldn't even tell you how many times over the last four years, this question of whether Trump uh, represents some kind of a uh, move away from the imperial consensus. And I've always argued that that's false, that Trump simply represents a different variant of it, a more nakedly vicious uh, kind and perhaps a more incompetent form of imperialism, but imperialism nonetheless. And I think that uh, just these last few years have demonstrated that quite vividly. Anybody who thinks that Trump was somehow a move towards peace, was not paying attention to how close we came in Venezuela, how close we came in Iran, uh, the situation in in other parts of the world, including Yemen and elsewhere. Many other examples where Trump was actually probably the more vicious imperialist. Mm -hmm. However, the issue of administering the empire, the vast empire with all of its machinery and all of the various ways in which it has to be administered from the diplomatic to the political to the military intelligence surveillance and all of the rest of that, Trump is probably not equipped to do that. And so the question really is, can the imperial consensus reconstitute itself? Can the United States reestablish itself as a global hegemon or have the conditions changed so significantly in this short period of time that there's no going back to Kansas anymore? I don't think there's a going back. I don't think there's a going back. This is a longer conversation we're going to have to have. Uh, again, I'm one who who is arguing, and I think history will bear me right in a couple of years, uh, that that Trump inadvertently weakened the empire. And that's that to my perspective wasn't isn't a bad thing. But I think he weakened the empire um by pulling out and weakening certain ties. But I think also, and probably even more important than that, I would argue was the nature of how he actually conducted his response to COVID because it just left so much room uh, on the operating field to set new terms, to create new allies that China stepped in and filled the void. And we need to go back. We need to go back, I think, and really uh, analyze and look, you know, very carefully uh, how China has, has played uh, the coronavirus in terms of uh, creating new allies. But I think even more important, Eric, one of the things that that, that um, I wrote very briefly about, and I hope I can, can create some time over this next period, is for folks to do a serious analysis of the actual productive capacity of the Chinese state in the Communist Party and its alliance with, with its own, well, I mean, it is the, the capitalist class here, but... Um, what they were able to do and what they demonstrated in the world to the world uh, about how they handled the COVID crisis. The most visible aspect was that was how they built basically a whole new, uh, uh, if you compare, you know, what the United States has built in terms of hospitals compared to what China did in terms of building hospitals within a two month period. I mean, they, they did more in two months to build new hospitals than I think the United States has done in 10. From I have to go back and, and, and check that. But it was an astounding demonstration of their actual productive capacity, a capacity that cannot be matched and cannot be met at this point in time by the United States. And best believe the Pentagon and all those forces were paying keen attention to that because that productive capacity could be turned in so many other directions and so many other pivots if the Chinese Communist Party so chose to do so. That's not gone unnoticed by other forces around the globe, nor has it been lost on the Biden administration, which is why I was saying they have agreement, you know, like both sides have a level of agreement on China is our major kind of, you know, I'm saying are in terms of their, not mine, but their major threat, right? They had different tactics on how they were going to try to approach their problem, but best believe it's identified problem. So in that sense, there is there remains a, a kind of an imperial consensus, but to the degree at which uh, Biden and how he and his administration and alliances around him are going to go about pursuing it, we're going to return to another level of viciousness that I don't think people are prepared to. So you talked about narrowly avoid, averting war in, in Venezuela. I think that's back on the table, y'all. I really do. Uh, and the, all the indications are that they're going full steam ahead uh, 
with a, a number of different moves and covert operations uh, to make that happen in, in, in as speedy as possible. Um, by all indications, Yemen is going to be right back in the field of play. Um, I don't think he, the, this assassination that happened in Iran, uh, I think this is part of the interim, as you mentioned, but I think it also speaks to a level of, you know, uh, a kind of open permission that they felt that they're getting from the, from the new uh, Biden administration to come in and set some terms. So we're going to, we're, we're going to see a period of intense international conflict. Uh, and there is really no other way that it can play out. That is the thing I would love to have us a, a, have a deeper conversation for all of us to realize. And because the big danger for us is, you know, like uh, there, there really is no mass anti-war or peace movement in the United States now. And I would argue that the, given the level of just uh, the degree to which the, the, the Democrats have just kind of wholesale bought a lot of the social movements that have emerged over the past four or five years and, and folded them into their fold with, with uh, philanthropic dollars and, and seats at the table and things of that nature, that there won't fundamentally be one. Uh, and this is going to leave a tremendous amount of operating room for them to just rain down hell on some key sectors of the world uh, under, you know, this guise of establishing a new norm and returning the domestic part of the empire to a new peace. I agree with you on on almost everything you said. The only the only place I might have some quibble is the idea that that China's come out of COVID looking squeaky clean. In fact, um, much of the issues that China is now facing is a level of distrust among many of its own customers that China misled them as to the nature of the virus. That's why you saw these all these headlines all over European papers about China's so called mask diplomacy that China was trying to buy their way out of responsibility over COVID and all of this. So the reason I bring that up is not to blame China or to absolve anybody, but to say this is the new line here in the in this decade, right? China, not simply as a powerful economic engine, but China as a global uh, malevolent actor, right? China as the lying sort of totalitarian state, right? This is now going to be the major talking point where for the last 25 years, it was all about normalizing China, China bringing China into the fold, into the global community. Now well, it's going to be about we isolating that. China. Right, exactly we, right. We, so, we the question, so the question is, where does Europe fall in all of this, right? Because Europe needs China just like Europe needs Russian energy, but Europe also needs the United States. And so we will find Europe a battleground for influence in the coming years, won't we? Uh, this is where I would agree with you. Probably not as much uh, as as one would reckon. Uh, because this is where, co coming back, if you look at Europe as the measure, then I would agree with your statements. If you look at Africa and Latin America as the measure of the statements, I would say that there's a different narrative there. Different kind of different kind of struggle. Right. Africa would Africa would be proxy war, struggle over resources, struggle over influence. Europe is more of a propaganda struggle, prying allies away, uh, scuttling deals. As we saw, the United States doing everything it could to block the Germans from the Nord Stream pipeline right. with right. Russia recently. So a lot more, I would call it political subterfuge on the European scale on the European stage, whereas it would be just uh, nakedly neo-colonial. Uh, imperialism elsewhere. Right, but I, I think Europe is in much more contest. Um, now, I think from, you know, your, your usual suspects, uh, the UK, France, Germany, uh, you're going to get a kind of, you know, EU, NATO kind of towing line. Um, you know, even Boris and are going to, are, are clearly going to have to bend back in some ways uh, towards the EU because Biden has made it known uh, uh, that he is not going to give them the, you know, he's not going to give Boris the deal uh, that Trump was going to give him. And then if they don't follow, uh, um, you know, the peace accords with a uh, set of Northern Ireland, uh, um, he's not going to play ball anyway. So he's made that known that they're going to have to bend back in that direction in some form or fashion anyway. Um, but as it relates to the broader piece, what's really at play I think in the contest around China 
is where does Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Eastern Europe line up? And they have some major problems within the European project right now uh, because there's undeniably uh, a, a base for neo-fascist, if not outright straight-up fascist uh, uh, politics and, and forces um, uh, on that Eastern Front that cannot be ignored. Uh, and you saw one of the major things that, that uh, 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 even on the COVID front there, who was it? What was it? Uh, was it Poland and Hungary, I believe it was, um, initially blocked the first major aid disposal because it was embedded in there uh, that they would have to apply by certain kind of European rights norms and standards uh, and wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, discriminate at least openly or blatantly in the way that they have been doing against uh, immigrants, uh, uh, against you know uh, uh, queer folks and against women on certain questions like uh, abortion and the right to, to choose. Um, that There's a major contest at play. Uh, and I think where so even China, um, you know, is, is very keen on uh, being willing to play ball with, with many of these neo-fascist forces. Uh, and so that, I think, is where the major contest is going to be, is how is that going to line up? How is that going to play out? Both for the, And what does it mean for the European project? I, for one, I think that uh, I think his days are somewhat numbered um, uh, because of these dynamics and because, you know, there there's no way, um, given the kind of historic economic and political economic divide there, uh, that the ongoing kind of uh, subsidies uh, are going to be able to, uh, that to say the, like the West enjoys in so many different ways, the Western Europe, Western Europe enjoys, is going to be able to maintain with the neoliberal structure of how they have to have the balanced budgets within that framework. It's part of their core constitution. We know it doesn't work. You know, it clearly hasn't worked for Greece, clearly hasn't worked for Italy, doesn't work for for uh, 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 Spain, uh, which is trying to balance it a little bit more. But there's some deep problems there uh, uh, afloat. And where I think this part of that narrative has come in is that China has come in, you know, and set deals up uh, to control some of the ports in Greece, to try to control some of the ports in Spain, uh, uh, trying to make similar uh, uh, moves in Italy. And there are a certain set of forces who are more than willing to play ball. So it's not like even that narrative is a consolidated narrative. That's a narrative of a particular old guard of neoliberals who are having some major problem with the, the kind of neo-nationalist, neo-fascist forces who are willing to, to play that ball if they think it's going to give them, quote unquote, kind of more autonomy or more control uh, over their local uh, uh, states to be able to make the deals and do the social reengineering that they want to do. Um, so it, it's it's going to be an interesting period. That's why when you were saying earlier, like, could they go back? You know, like, is NATO going to just go back the way it was? Is the EU going to be able to go back, you know, the way it was for Biden uh, to be able to kind of go back to the old consensus? I'm arguing no, right? Uh, there's a reason that, that we've seen the rise of, of uh, uh, Urban and Erdogan and Modi and Duterte and Yeltsin and Trump uh, uh, and Bolsonaro. These are not isolated incidents. These are deep parts of the features and part of the, the deep changes that I think we're seeing play out within the very structure of capitalism itself, that they are going to have to contend with. There is no going back you know, to uh, either the good old days of Obama or the good old days of Clinton uh, which they're which they're promising, and they very well know that uh, uh, very very clearly. Uh, which is why you you kind of hearing in different ways uh, Biden kind of speaking out of you know both sides of his mouth relative to this whole question about uh, a, a new stimulus bill. So on, on, there's a public display of we need it and we need it now, but then there's well wait till I get in office, both for positioning and for me to claim it. But there's also I want it to be smaller for my own reasons that he's trying to negotiate with mention some of those old, those other forces, A, so that they will you know pass it on a practical side, pragmatic side, but B, he also knows that at the end of the day, that is the actual austerity bill. That is the price 
that they are going to try to extract from our hides at the end of the day. Now he's willing to 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 play it, you know, uh, 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 to the hilt. But is that something the U.S. economy is going to be able to bear in the long term with the amount of debt that was that was you know uh, 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 accumulated during uh, uh, Trump years? Remember, he said, "I don't mind uh, doing it." And apparently, the Republicans didn't either, because he said very clearly, "I'm not going to be here for when that bill comes due." So, if it benefits me in the here and now, I'll leave that and defer it later on. That later on, you know, uh, uh, Biden is one who understands kind of what I would call the Vietnam uh, narrative and how Vietnam and the expense of Vietnam weakened the empire. And that is something he keenly has in the back of his mind around how his own fiscal policy, I would argue, is playing out and what he sees relative to the great game in the future and, and, and why he doesn't want to weaken himself or the empire in that particular regard. So there's a number of just set up the straight up trap doors that are in play that guarantee that there will not be a return to normal. So much to consider, so many questions. We could go on for many more hours talking about all of these, but of course we're not going to do that. Kali Akuno has been with me here on Counterpunch Radio. Kali is the co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson. Go to follow them on Twitter at Cooperation JXN. Highly recommend that. Kali, as always, brilliant analysis. Kali, thanks for coming back on the show and talking with us. Thank you. We'll do some more soon. Listeners, thank you as always. Go to Counterpunch, get your subscription to CP Plus, and we'll see you again next week.